Trawler Talk, the podcast for trawler nuts and long-range cruising enthusiasts. As the signature podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, Trawler Talk aims to engage, educate, and inspire as we dive into the very best of the long-range cruising lifestyle. I'm your host, Andrew Parkinson. This episode is brought to you by Outer Reef Yachts. As a leading manufacturer of award-winning long-range motor yachts, Outer Reef specializes in building robust blue water yachts offering luxury, efficiency, safety, and technological ingenuity. With boats ranging from 58 to 115 feet, Outer Reef has the perfect model to suit any cruising lifestyle. To learn more, visit OuterReefYachts.com. That's OuterReefYachts.com. It was a sunny June afternoon back in 1996. Motor yacht Nadine was more than halfway between the Italian mainland and her destination, the island of Sardinia. The veteran captain had planned to make the short 85-mile run from the coast to the island in seven hours, possibly less depending on conditions. When Nadine departed, the forecast was for some wind and a chop, nothing a seagoing vessel couldn't handle. The voyage started out as routine. Winds were a steady 15 to 20 knots on the bow during the first few hours. In spite of the breeze, the crew were enjoying a sunny day on the open deck. Occasionally, a drink spilled when the bow hit a wave crest, certainly not unusual, and nobody seemed to mind. Around two in the afternoon, a rogue wave hits the bow, with such a force that it even broke over the pilot house, the first indication of some wicked weather up ahead. About that same time came an announcement over the radio of some unexpected gale warnings along the Italian coast. What follows is in the words of Captain Mark Elliott himself. Quote, the wind was beginning to strengthen, and what had been four to six foot waves were rising to seven to nine feet. By three o'clock in the afternoon, it was getting bad. By four, it was gnarly. By five, the boat had slowed to steerage way, just trying to keep the bow headed directly into the oncoming crests. We were still making three or four knots into the seas, though at times stopping completely by the power of a steep cresting wave before dropping into a deep trough with a feeling of weightlessness. Then the bow buried into a huge cresting sea. We were inclined upward at a 20 degree angle as the sea broke over us, roaring like a freight train. The tremendous force of that wave shook the vessel from bow to stern. It crashed into the crew scuttle on the foredeck and crushed the lap strike wooden hatch under tons of moving water. Around 6 p.m., we were clocking the winds at 60 to 70 knots, and I think some of the crests were hitting 35 feet and more, one right behind the other. Between the hours of twilight and midnight, about three hours in the summer solstice, the power of the seas was so great that literally every piece of wood on deck was torn from its fasteners. The wooden bow lockers were gone, the wood slat bulwark completely dismantled, even the cap rails were broken clean away. As Nadine rose and fell, she twisted and contorted with a flexibility that helped pry away the bright work. It's rare to have seas rise 50 feet with only 200 feet between crests, but not that night. Eventually, the green water floated away all of the debris, leaving the decks completely bare." End quote. In the end, Nadine ultimately met her demise. All of the guests survived, but the real story of the sinking, which was depicted in the 2013 film The Wolf of Wall Street, is far more compelling than the almost comedic Hollywood version. The storm that did her in is known in the Med as a mistral, a complex weather phenomenon that can quickly and unexpectedly channel gale force conditions. Once such a storm pattern is forecast, all marine traffic is advised to take precautions. The problem is that the where, when, and the anticipated strength of these storms are difficult to predict. Such was the case on this day. As any boater knows, weather can make the difference between a pleasant cruise and a harrowing adventure. 
Maybe no one understands this better than our guest today, Chris Parker, founder of the Marine Weather Center based in Lakeland, Florida, where he broadcasts to small private vessels all over the world. Think of him as a personal trainer for weather. You can check out his website at mwxc.com. Now, many in our audience remember Hurricane Dorian, that Category 5 hurricane that basically stalled over the Bahamas for 48 hours as a Category 5. PassageMaker.com and our social media followers at sea were literally hanging on your daily updates to help get them out of harm's way. So, Chris, first off, thank you. And second, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how you got to where you are? I'm Chris Parker with Marine Weather Center. And I started boating when I was 10 years old. My dad bought a powerboat in New Jersey and we took the boat to Maryland, the northern part of the Chesapeake Bay. And in summers, as a young teenager, I had a small runabout uh, uh, little outboard boat. And we were in a 60 field uh, mooring field behind a farmer's house. In the summertime, I would uh, be the unofficial launch service. And as a young teenager, I, you know, I thought that was just great to have a mission that was fun on a boat. Spent about 15 years living aboard a sailboat and uh, then went cruising full-time cruising for five years in the Bahamas, Caribbean, Bermuda, uh, New England, up and down the U.S. East Coast. Interested in weather since I was four years old. I wanted to grow up to be a TV meteorologist. In the 1990s, I was in my 30s, uh, got into hang gliding in Florida and learned a lot about micrometeorology. Uh, you know, my life really depended on knowledge of the weather with hang gliding. And then obviously when we were full-time liveaboards and cruising, uh, weather was an integral part of our lives. So we've got some interesting stories to tell you today and, uh, and I think you'll be, uh, you'll be entertained. As you know, boaters, whether inshore or offshore, have a responsibility to know what conditions are expected for the duration of the voyage. What would you say is considered cause for concern for the trawler guy when it comes to keeping our eyes on the skies? So, you know, obviously weather has a huge impact on our safety and our comfort. Uh, we've all spent a long time working all of our lives to save for the, you know, the perfect boat and go the places we want to go on the boat. And then to not have the weather component uh, satisfied where you're out there enjoying the nice weather, um, you know, and, and to be out there battling bad conditions, it just doesn't make any sense. So uh, I would suggest that working with a weather coach like us, we consider ourselves kind of weather coaches for our clients. Uh, we can help you be in the right place at the right time to maximize your enjoyment of your time on the water uh, and, uh, you know, small price to pay to help increase your enjoyment. Uh, also, it, you know, obviously it is a, it is a safety thing and what we would hope to instill in clients is the ability for them to look at the weather situation and to at least know that they have to ask questions and then maybe to ask the right questions. So the way I like to suggest uh, thinking about this is if it's 75 degrees today and the wind is blowing east at 15 knots and there are no weather concerns and the forecast for tomorrow is exactly the same thing and the next day is exactly the same thing, then go have a beer, don't worry so much about the weather, you know, there's just not gonna be any issues. But if anything changes, if the weather today is east at 15 knots and it's 75 degrees and tomorrow's gonna be south at 30 or south at 10, you need to understand that there's something changing with the weather and understand what it is that's changing and is it a cause for concern. So any change in the weather over time should prompt you asking questions about why is this happening and is there any potential that it's going to bring bad weather. We were working with a vessel just yesterday 
And uh, he emailed me in the afternoon. He was in Cat Island, heading down to the Turks and Caicos in the in the Bahamas area. And we had suggested all week that the weather was going to be good for departing on Thursday. And instead, this was Wednesday. He emailed me asking if he need if he could go to the fuel dock and fuel up Wednesday afternoon because he had a shallow draft and he had some concerns about fueling up the following morning. And I said, sure, go ahead and fuel up. You know, there's no problem with the weather where you are. Just don't leave until noon tomorrow. And what did he do? The weather looked good to him. He didn't check with me. He left right after fueling. And he emailed me uh, this morning and said, it was a really horrible night out here. And I don't know what happened. And, you know, the answer is that we expected this. While the weather was fine where he was, by moving 60 miles during the night, he moved into an area where the weather was bad. And we knew that. And that's why we didn't want him leaving until noon the following day. And we had explained that to him previously, but, you know, he just didn't get it. He thought the weather was good. And, and so he went. In a case like the Bahamas, it's really interesting. People might get a little overconfident sometimes because, well, first, there's 700 of them. And it's not hard to get from one to the next, usually. And they think, well, if I get into trouble, I'll just tuck in. But sometimes there might not be a place to tuck in. And at night, things are difficult. You know, I, I wouldn't want to approach a strange island at night. It's safer to probably stay just at sea and be a little uncomfortable. So, you know, another good example, when we work with clients, we try to identify inflection points in the weather and decision points along the trip. And we were working with a client who had limited uh, offshore communications capabilities and they were leaving from the uh, Virgin Islands. This was way back in 2005 when I was just getting started. Um, and what I suggested to her was the weather's going to be really great for the first seven days. There's no concern about weather. We do have a concern about a trough coming off the United States in the last three days, four days of your trip. And you should contact us about a day or two before you get into that so we can refine the forecast. So uh, we weren't able to give her a forecast for that trough as she was approaching the Gulf Stream, but we knew that there were, were going to be some potential weather issues and that she should contact us a day or two before she got into it. Well, she didn't. And uh, so a couple days went by that we didn't hear from her and we thought that was a little odd. Um, but finally, she called us on her satellite phone and said that she was really, uh, really concerned for the safety of the crew and the boat. They'd been in 50 to 60 knot winds, almost hurricane force winds for two days. And they were uh, about 100 miles from the Gulf Stream. And what I told her was you need to move toward the Gulf Stream and cross the Gulf Stream and head toward Hatteras. And she's, she was freaking out on the telephone. I can't do that. I can't get into the Gulf Stream. I can't head toward Cape Hatteras. But I said, if you stay where you are, it's gonna be three more days of this before it's over. If you head Northwest toward the Gulf Stream, in 30 miles, you're gonna be out of it. I can see you're 30 miles from the edge of this. Mm -hmm. Just move and you know, in six hours, you're gonna be fine. She would have had a bad 12 hours going through the trough, but it would have been 12 hours of bad weather instead of two days of bad weather, and she wouldn't have been freaking out. So, um, you know, communicating with your weather forecaster and weather router on the timeline that they suggest you communicate with them is a good idea. We Again, we identify inflection points in the weather and decision points along the trip, and we probably should communicate to refine the forecast before you get to one of those changes in the weather or decision points along the trip. 
Yeah, I mean, there's enough variables on a boat that you have to consider. I think the trick is to say, I'm going to limit my exposure to some variables, control what I can control. And if it means not being out in bad weather by looking at a forecast, or in your case, having somebody in the right place who can help facilitate that, then that's a real asset, not to mention peace of mind, right? We often lay out scenarios with clients where uh, they'll want to do something and the weather is just not conducive. And we'll give them several options. You know, option A is to change your destination. Option B is to change your departure timing. And option C is just not to go. Delay your trip. At our Trawler Fest events, which we do a few of these around the country each year with Passage Maker Magazine, you, Chris, present a popular seminar, 20 Facts You Should Know About the Weather But Probably Don't. Great title, by the way. Without giving away the whole pie, can you share with our audience maybe one or two key takeaways that might help them on their boats today? Sure. So the the first, in terms of the sea state, obviously waves impact trawlers to a very great extent. What we're really concerned about is the acceleration imparted on the vessel. So that's proportional to not only the height of the wave, but the interval between the waves. And... um, I would suggest that whatever wave forecast you're using, make sure that it's not only the height of the waves, but also the interval and understand how your boat responds to that. Uh, Understand that if waves are coming from a couple of different directions, it can make the seas very uncomfortable, very confused, larger and steeper than they would otherwise be. And by interval, because we have folks who are listening that may be new to weather terms or even boating in general, being in six to eight foot seas spaced 20 seconds apart is not nearly as miserable as six to eight feet spaced five seconds apart. And to to illustrate that, if I go into a little story, um, we were on our uh, Troy 30 sailboat delivering her from Miami up to Charleston, and we were in the Gulf Stream. Uh, It was a a fairly nice day, um, but the waves were probably 20 feet high. And the reason I know that the waves were 20 feet high is a liquids tanker passed us on the way up the Gulf Stream. And when we were on the crest of the wave and he was in the trough, we were looking down on his deck and could see the pipes running longitudinally along wow. the, the, the tanker. So we know it was a liquids tanker. And when we were in the trough of the wave and he was on the crest, we were looking up at his waterline. Mm. So he was pretty heavily laden, but the seas were at least 15 or 20 feet because uh, that was, you know, it was more than his freeboard. So I was down below on a 30-foot sailboat uh, making macaroni and cheese with a gimbaled stove, but I had the gimbal locked. The stove wasn't moving and it didn't spill a thing. Well, the answer was these 15 or 20-foot waves were probably spaced 20 or 30 seconds apart. They must have been coming from Africa, from thousands of miles away. And you see this sometimes in the Pacific. It's more rare to see waves that are that widely spaced in the Atlantic. The only sensation was like riding an elevator. There was a very slight uh, sensation of feeling heavy when we were going up a wave and a very slight sensation of feeling lighter than normal as we were coming down a wave. There was no... Um, noticeable uh, speeding up or slowing down of the boat. It was very subtle. Uh, there was no pitching. There was no rolling. Uh, it was We were flat as a church. It was just amazing. Um, so it's not only the height, but also the interval uh, of the waves. And a rule of thumb that you might use is if it's a typical wind-driven wave that's fairly rough, it's about one second per foot of height. So a six-foot wave will have about a six-second interval. And if it's more widely spaced than that, then it's a swell that's going to impart less acceleration on the vessel. Is there a rule of thumb you follow to say if the interval is shorter than the wave height, it's a no-go? 
as long as the waves are small enough, it doesn't make a big difference. But if we start getting into, and, and this is going to vary by boat, sure. but we start getting into three, four, five, six foot waves, yes, if the interval is shorter than the height in feet, then I would think about not going. I'll take that. I'll take that. I mean, talk about low tech. It's not even math. You know, I'm a words guy, so that works for me, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yes, some of us are math challenge. Speaking of tech, a lot of weather apps are out there now. What do you recommend? I mean, I've got at least three of them on my phone right now. Which one should we be using when we're out there? Yeah, so I would I would list four uh, go-to apps that I would use on the phone. One would be Windy. Um, and there, believe it or not, there are two versions of Windy. It's a completely different app, but one has a blue logo and one has a red kind of swoosh logo. And I would use, they're, they're both good apps. Uh, with the red swoosh is the one I would use. The, the blue logo is fine. Uh, the red swoosh is, is, I think, a better product for most purposes. Uh, I can't understand why Apple and Android would let two apps on the store with exactly the same name, but they do have exactly the same name. Mm. So one caution I would give you is with the Windy app, uh, there, depending on which screen you're using, you can see four weather models compared over time. And the four models are static. It's the, uh, the GFS model, which is from the United States, the ECMWF model from the Europeans, uh, the NAM model, which is the North American model for short-term forecasting, or one of them. And I believe it's the Media Blue model uh, from Switzerland. The problem is with the Media Blue model, it's really optimized for a mountainous terrain, and it's really not good in, the, in marine areas. So whenever I do a weather seminar, I pull up the, the Windy app and I compare those models. And it doesn't matter what day it is, uh, the, the Media Blue model is always different from the other models and it's always wrong. So I'm sure it's got a really high skill in mountainous areas, but you know, we don't do much boating in mountainous areas. But I just feel like when you're on a boat in 20, 30 footers, to me, that qualifies as mountainous terrain. I live in South Florida. Right? <laughs> yeah. Could be. So do, don't get freaked out if that one model is showing something that's different and not good. But isn't that really what forecasting is about? I mean, it's not about just pulling up this app or looking at this computer screen that simply tells you this is what the weather's going to be. It's going to say, based on X conditions and Y other information at our disposal, here are the chances of Z occurring where you are. It's being able to make an informed decision based on information on hand and, you know, perhaps rely on a trusted partner to help you. Yes. And, you know, going back 15 years, I was concerned about getting into doing weather seminars and educating clients because I thought the more my clients knew, the less they would need me. And it turns out it's exactly the opposite. Uh, today, everything is so complex uh, in our lives in general and on our boats that, uh, you know, when we're out cruising, we have to be a mechanic, um, a, a cook, a bottle washer, a plumber, an electrician. Do you really want to be your own meteorologist? And do you really have the skill to compare the different forecast models and to really understand what's going on? Um, I think it's better if our clients know enough about whether to ask really good questions. And I think they can get much more out of our services um, by having some weather knowledge. But it's just not realistic that they're going to have or that most of our clients are going to devote the necessary time to develop really high level meteorology skills. What's the worst weather predicament you've personally been in at sea? So we uh, had a weekend, or actually this was a 10-day trip that we planned from Miami to the Abacos one winter. And 
we were on a schedule. Uh, it was Christmas time. I, I had a week off of work plus the weekend on either end. So on the Friday afternoon, we get the boat all loaded up with stuff and stow it away reasonably well and set out across the Gulf Stream to the Bahamas. Well, that night a cold front came through and the cold front was predicted to be not very pleasant, but it turned into about a 50 knot gust front and we were knocked down. We were more than 90 degrees over on the sailboat, spreaders in the water. At night in the Gulf Stream, about 20 miles from Miami, the boat had not very well gasketed cockpit lockers and things. So had we stayed like that for very long, we'd have gone down. Um, luckily, we didn't. The, the boat came back fairly quickly and, uh, and you know everything below was a shambles. Uh, we didn't get to the Abacos on that trip. We got to Freeport and Lucaya in the Bahamas. And the, the day we got to Lucaya, it was, uh, I think, Christmas Eve we got there. And the, the Brit who ran the place uh, came down to see us when we, when we got to the dock. And he said, huh, we didn't really expect anyone to be arriving today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that went wrong. It probably didn't go as wrong as quickly as it sounds. It was probably a nice long buildup to disaster, right? It was pretty quick. When that gust front hit us, we could see it coming. And all of a sudden, the boat was over more than 90 wow. degrees. Let's talk about hurricanes. A lot of our readers have had some really close calls with hurricanes recently. Some have even been right in the path of the storm and opted to ride it out on board, or in some cases, very close by. Specifically, talking about the Bahamas and what happened last year with Dorian, that Cat 5 hurricane that stalled out over the Abacos, and with devastating consequences, mind you. Chris Parker, uh, you were instrumental in helping many in our audience, and probably some who are listening right now, by making regular updates on what that storm was doing, where it was headed, and telling our guys out there where to go and what to do to keep out of harm's way. What advice can your service give the trawler guy in terms of how to deal with an impending water weather event as serious as a hurricane? What we can do is try to make the, dis we try to coach you to make the best decisions. So we have a couple of different levels of service that we offer. Uh, we have a daily regional email forecast where we're not communicating one-on-one -on -one with clients. We're communicating with hundreds or thousands of clients in a mass email, but it's targeted generally at cruisers and contains the information that you need to make good decisions. Uh, so that's not one-on-one -on -one coaching, but it's it's uh, it's sort of uh, a little more generalized. But even in that product, we suggested on. Uh, for instance, with Hurricane Dorian hitting the Abacos uh, last summer, we suggested on Wednesday evening uh, and Dorian hit on Sunday at midday. So this was five days in advance uh, and vessels who took this advice would have had really good weather to take action to get themselves into a safer place on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. All, all three of those days were really good weather. Uh, so our advice was on that Wednesday evening, the forecast is a, a high confidence that the Abacos is going to get a direct hit. Um, and if something changes, we're not going to be able to tell you that until it's too late. So this is the time to leave. The weather's going to be good for the next three days. The safest place to go was the central or the southern Bahamas. And vessels could have done a 24-hour overnight from the Abacos down to Georgetown and been completely 100% safe. We don't say 100% in meteorology very often, but I could have told you there was a great big area of high pressure over the central Bahamas. And there was absolutely no way uh, that, the, uh, that Dorian was going to go there. 
So that's what I would have done. Uh, we had some clients who made some other decisions uh, going to uh, back to Florida to secure other properties that they had there and to be with friends and, uh, and family. Uh, and we suggested that Florida, even Palm Beach area, was a better place to be than in the Abacos because we thought there was a chance that Dorian would turn north before reaching the Florida coast, which uh, eventually is what happened. Um, so even in our regional forecast, that's not one-on-one, -on -one, we were making those general suggestions. Then we also do work one-on-one -on -one with clients, telephone calls, emails, text messages back and forth. And we would definitely have suggested to get out of the Abacos in plenty of time before there was any inclement weather uh, and preferably head south. And then we could communicate with vessels on single sideband radio and webcasts were on the air every morning on the radio and simulcasted on the internet. Um, and there we can have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with clients and coach them to make the right decisions there. So what we can do is provide not only the weather information, but also the actionable plan about what you should do now that you know what the weather situation is. Because that's, that's what's important is what decisions do you make? And Dorian was such a slow moving storm. Boat owners had plenty of time to make that informed decision and get out of the way. But even despite that information saying basically go farther south, deeper into the Bahamas chain to escape impact, you'd have to imagine the trepidation, you know, many boaters probably had in doing so. I mean, even with all the forecasting and information available, I know that was a tough call for so many to make. Sometimes it's counterintuitive, but given the synoptic pattern, I could give you a as close to 100% guarantee as we could ever get in meteorology that going to the central or southern Bahamas was the right place to go. Um, it, it made perfect sense what Dorian did, his forecast track. Uh, you know, three, four, five days out, we were anticipating it quite well. And there was just no way there was going to be enough of a turn quickly enough to bring it anywhere near the central Bahamas. I mean, if someone said to me, you know, I'm in the Abacos, leave the Abacos, go to the Exumas. Right. You want me to do what? No problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Chris, thanks for joining us here on Trawler Talk. It's been an education and it's always fun hanging out with you. Appreciate everything you do. And now that we're in hurricane season, I imagine we'll be speaking with you again real soon. Sounds good. Once again, this episode of Trawler Talk was brought to you by Outer Reef Yachts, leading manufacturer of award-winning long-range motor yachts. When you think Outer Reef Yachts, think luxury, efficiency, safety, fun, peace of mind. That's what you get with any adventure aboard an Outer Reef Yacht. For more info, visit OuterReefYachts.com. That's OuterReefYachts.com. What did we learn today? I think we can all agree that enjoying the ever-changing environment is certainly an attraction of boating. While it's the smart captain that learns the telltale signs in the sky and can spot weather patterns as they arise, if you're not already a marine weather expert, not to worry. You'll learn as you go. And you could even take a class in person or online. Meanwhile, always keep a weather eye, listen to the experts, play conservatively, and most of all, always enjoy your time on the water. Thanks for listening. And remember, for all your cruising needs, you can get your daily dose of Trawler Zen at PassageMaker.com. For Trawler Talk and Passage Maker Magazine, I'm Andrew Parkinson.